Chapter 20 Humanity My stay at the parish in Krasnoyarsk didn't last very long. The secret police showed up one morning at 1 a.m. and gave me 48 hours to get out of town. They didn't waste time in argument or explanation. They simply stamped my permit to live in Krasnoyarsk, cancelled, and told me I would be arrested if I was still there two days later. They ignored my questions and went about the proceedings quite matter-of-factly, for the most part in silence. When they had finished, the agent in charge said with cold precision, Vladimir Martinovich, you have been warned repeatedly, and this is your last chance. You can either go to Abakan or Yeniseisk. That's all. I had never heard of either town, but he told me Yeniseisk was in northern Siberia and Abakan to the south. I had had enough of northern Siberia, so I chose Abakan. Very well, he said. Now let me make one thing clear. In Abakan, you will do no more of the work you've been doing here and in Norilsk, or else you will wind up where you started. Do I make myself clear? He didn't say anything about being a priest or about religion, but we both knew what he meant. Accordingly, when I got to Abakan, I went to work at the city garage, ATK-50, and found a room as a lodger in the home of an invalid and his wife. Ironically, he was a man who before his illness had been the secretary of the city council, a party man and still a staunch communist. Because he was an invalid and living on a small pension, however, he and his wife were happy to rent me their spare room in order to supplement the family income, even though I was a bit vague on how and why I had come to Abacon and how long I intended to stay. I lived with him and his wife for more than two years, until he told me with embarrassment and chagrin that his old cronies at the city council had been asking about me and suggesting that it didn't look good for a party man like himself to have someone like me living with him. By that time we were good friends, and he was deeply ashamed to ask me to move. Yet he was also concerned about losing his membership in the party and his meager pension. By that time, too, though, I had made many friends in the neighborhood, and it was easy enough for us to arrange that I should move in with the family next door, who were also good friends. I was delighted with the arrangement, for I had grown fond of these people who treated me like a member of the family, and I was glad to remain close to them. Moreover, my new lodgings also afforded me somewhat more privacy and a better chance to say Mass each day without fear of interruption. There was generally no one home in the new house when I finished my shift at the garage except for Babushka, the old grandmother, and so I usually had an opportunity before dinner for Mass or quiet prayer. Babushka and I quickly became great friends, and she always had a cup of hot soup or kasha waiting for me when I came home at night. These years in Abakan were my first real chance to become intimately involved with daily life and family life in the Soviet Union. I spent long hours in conversation with these families and their friends, and I came to know a good cross-section of people, from the workers I knew at the garage and elsewhere, all the way up to party men who were constantly dropping in to chat with their former city council colleague. His home, in fact, was a meeting place of sorts with a constant stream of visitors. That, too, was an advantage for me, for people could come to visit and talk with me privately about religion without calling much attention to themselves or to me in the constant goings and comings around the house. At first I was extremely cautious here in Abakan, not to mention that I was a priest or to engage in any apostolate. But little by little it became known. Friend told friend, and soon I was busy again. Not, however, in any formal way or with large groups, but with individuals and couples. I gave advice, I counseled, I heard confessions and baptized children, I anointed the sick and the dying. Once again, I was amazed at the faith and the constancy of these people and the sacrifices they were willing to make for their faith, and I grew to love these Russian people as never before. 
the ordinary Soviet citizen is not taken in by all the propaganda. Like any human being, he yearns for a richer and fuller life, and he seeks a deeper meaning to life than the material things promised but not yet delivered by communism or the glorious revolution of building the perfect socialistic society. He is proud of his country's achievements, proud of what has been accomplished in a few short generations, and he doesn't much question the system he lives under. But he and his friends are troubled by the same problems as people everywhere, and they are looking for answers. They are not sure religion is the answer. Indeed, they are suspicious of religion and the churches, but they are looking for more satisfactory answers to their inner longing and questions than communism has yet offered. By its very ideology, communism concerns itself with the question of humanity. To this end, it directs all its efforts. No social system in the world gives such prestige to man as does communism, at least in theory and in propaganda. Literature, culture, education, work, science, law, medicine, labor, and all the riches of the country are meant to serve the good of the people. There are slogans everywhere that read, All for Men. Gorky's saying that the word man resounds beautifully is often quoted, and children in school and workers in factories are repeatedly told there is nothing in the world more precious than the human being called men. Special expressions in daily usage have been created to emphasize the goodness of human nature. A whole morality has been constructed on the subject, and it permeates the new social order. When reprimanded by authorities or by a comrade for some failure or wrongdoing, citizens are reminded of their obligation to be human, to be conscientious human beings, honest, men of their word. These basic characteristics of human nature are constantly instilled in the minds of children and all Soviet citizens with a fierce insistence. The communist man, the man of the new social order, must be superior to all human beings, for on him depends the conversion of the world to communism, to freedom and brotherhood and justice for all. The party and the government use every means at their disposal to educate citizens in this new spirit of communism. All the communications media, the theaters, art and literature, the schools and labor unions and clubhouses built all over the country for that very purpose stress the same theme. Even entertainment and art are not free from this frequently annoying insistence on the virtues of the new communist man, on the dignity of work for a cause, on the need for honesty and the observance of law, on brotherhood, and on the necessity to give and accept fraternal comradely correction. The highest ideas of human love and charity are stressed Selfishness and sloth and greed are the chief enemies. The goal is to provide for the common good of all, to do for humanity what mankind has never yet succeeded in doing. There is no doubt that such constant propaganda has an effect. One obvious achievement is a spirit of comradeship unrealized anywhere else. Another is the very real pride the people take in their accomplishment, whether it be the fulfillment of a five-year plan or the construction of a new dam or factory or a good harvest or simply having filled the daily norms set for their individual jobs. A sense of having enriched the motherland in some way or other makes people feel a part of things and proud of the system. They cannot understand capitalism and say so openly. They have heard their system and their achievements extolled over and over again through a generation, and they have come to believe it. They simply take it for granted and think that somehow or other that's the way things must be. Nor is there anything surprising about this. In the West, the same psychological effect is produced by advertising all sorts of new products, cars, homes, soaps and deodorants, styles, and even pornography. The American way of life is pictured in full color, 
and people come to believe they must have these things, even to the extent of going into debt or getting a loan in order to have the latest and feel up to date with the latest styles or developments. Yet none of these things really satisfy people. Perhaps there is an unconscious, conditioned reflex acceptance of the premises and goals so constantly repeated, but there is also a vaguely realized and perhaps equally subconscious feeling that there must be more to life than material possessions and accomplishments, whether individual or collective. Over and over again, I took part in discussions with ordinary workers and husbands and wives and grandmothers of families, from the most simple to the most sophisticated communists, on the meaning of life and the question of morality. It wasn't necessary for me to initiate these discussions. The constant repetition of the slogan, All for Men, is the communist equivalent of TV commercials, or a news report, or documentary, or even some cultural program or piece of entertainment was enough to trigger reactions and start the discussions. The betterment of mankind, the abstract notion of humanity, or a glorified concept of men, are very tenuous ideals that quickly lose their power to inspire or to satisfy in the face of daily experience and the constant grind of day-to-day -day living. One can be dedicated for a while to the goal of serving suffering humanity. One can be inspired by the notion of brotherhood as a goal. But human nature being what it is, and human failings all too prevalent, it is difficult to support and maintain these moments of inspiration without some deeper and more significant motivation. In Marxist ideology, in atheistic communism, men and the material world are all there is. For the rest, there is only a vague vision of some future perfect society, some more elevated and better stage of mankind that will exist in a golden age to come, for which even the most doctrinaire apologists of communism have long since given up trying to set a date. Suddenly, today's communists find themselves in the position of those first and second century Christians who began to realize that the parousia, the second coming of Christ, was not just around the corner. Ironically, the future golden age of communism is now treated by the ordinary citizen, and especially the young, with the same contempt that communist spokesmen used to reserve for their pie-in-the-sky descriptions of religion. Man, after all, is only man, especially if he is the fellow next door with all his petty failings, or the stupid guy at the next workbench on the job, or the cheating butcher or shop clerk, the discourteous and impatient bus driver, the rude and ill-tempered traffic policeman, the shouting party member or social climber, the bad-tempered shop foreman or union boss, the neighbor's undisciplined spoiled brats. You can sympathize with the sick and the suffering and be moved to help them, you can be stirred by the stories of victims of war or natural catastrophes, but it's hard to feel much sympathy or brotherly love for those with whom you rub elbows every day and observe with all too human failings. What claim does the man on the street have on me? Why should I treat that ape down the block or at work as a comrade out of some noble but totally abstract idea of brotherhood? Love for family and friends is one thing. It springs from something inside human nature and the bonds of mutual sharing and sacrifice. But love for mankind in general, what is that? And how could you explain the larger evils of communism? These people knew of the terrors of Stalin's time. Practically everyone in our group had a friend or a relative or at least knew of someone who had been to the slave labor camps of Siberia. Where was the system's much-vaunted humanity then? Or abortions? Just take abortions. Here in our little town alone, there were 56 abortions daily. Just check the official statistics. And what about the rest of the Soviet Union? Is that any way to foster humanity? Abortion is legal in the Soviet Union. 
Anyone who wants one can have it performed. The government says it had to be legalized in order to prevent private abuses. The wages of husband and wife together make it hard to support more than one or two children, so everyone wants an abortion. Yet the question haunts them. The hallways of the clinics adjoining the abortion rooms were full of posters, not praising abortion, but informing patients of the possible detrimental effects on both mind and body such an operation could have. The doctors, mostly women, and the nurses and other personnel would try to dissuade patients from the operation. Women confided years later that they could not rid themselves of feelings of guilt about it. And these were not believers, but women and girls who had received a complete atheistic education in Soviet schools. Even for communism, it is a basic question of life and death, of wrong and right. If life at its very root can be treated so lightly, people would say, what is going to stop such a mentality from spreading? Society? Hardly. Society cannot even handle properly its present problems of crime and other social disorders. And when a society actually endorses evil, where will it end? Can man alone be trusted to solve mankind's problems? Look at history and the depths to which civilized countries have sunk time after time. Little by little in such conversations, I would bring in the notion of God and religion, of fallen human nature and redemption of Christ and his kingdom. Of course, it depended on whom I was with and how ready they were to listen as to how far I would go or what I would say. My closest friends knew I was a priest and would sometimes listen eagerly. With others, I would simply state unashamedly that I was a believer and wait for their reaction to see where the conversation might lead. Some were curious and would question me further. Some would just shrug, and some would bitterly attack religion in the church. Their attacks would always center on the abuses that are the highlight of all atheistic propaganda against religion, the greed of the church, and how the priests and monks sell candles and icons for money, the sexual perversions of priests and nuns, the political influence and power politics of the church under the czars, the weird ascetical practices and penances of holy men, even the tortures of the Inquisition. Every charge that the church or churchmen have ever left themselves open to by their human failings is recounted in great detail in the courses on atheism in the schools and displayed in the public museums of atheism. That is the only side of the church the ordinary citizen of this generation has ever heard about, so his antipathy to the church and to religion, based on these half-truths and distortions, is understandable. I didn't try to defend these things. God alone knows whether they can be defended, but tried instead to steer the conversation back to the truths of faith that had some bearing on our earlier conversation about the meaning of life and the brotherhood of man. I talked about God as I believed in him, about creation and God's plan for man and the world. I talked about the fall and about sin, of man's rejection of God and his plan, of the disorder that had come into the world and the evils that had plagued the human race because of this disorder we call sin. I talked about God's promise of Redeemer and the coming of Christ. I spoke of the example he set us of one perfect human life in which every thought and action was dedicated to doing God's will, the will of the Father, and so restoring again that perfect order that had originally been God's plan for all mankind. I talked of how he had suffered every indignity a human being could suffer, from a humble birth to poverty to thirty years of the dullest and most routine life of work in a small and backward village to rejection and suffering and pain and finally death the end that faces every man. I spoke of his resurrection and victory over death, that central fact of all Christian belief that gives us absolute assurance of life beyond death, of life beyond this life, the assurance that there is a meaning to man and to his existence here on earth that transcends death. 
I told of how his coming was the beginning of a new age, of a new kingdom, the beginning, but only the beginning, of a recreation of the world according to God's original plan, which all of us now must dedicate ourselves to perfect and bring to completion. I explained his teaching on the fatherhood of God, which alone made sense of the brotherhood of man, of his teachings on love and justice and truth and honesty and self-sacrifice and conformity to the will of God, which formed the basis of Christian morality and the perfecting of the kingdom Christ had come to establish upon earth. Finally, I spoke of faith and the hope it gave to men, not only of a better future life, of pie in the sky by and by, but of the possibility of redeeming this world and all mankind. I wasn't out to convert anybody, but those themes were my contributions to the discussions that arose spontaneously about the meaning of life and of humanity, about brotherhood and a sense of dedication to work for a better life, about evil in the world and morality, about freedom and peace. If I didn't make believers out of anyone in the course of these rambling conversations, I at least presented them with an alternative to the party line and the doctrines they had heard and come to believe and sometimes question. I had offered another answer, at least, to the questions that troubled them, and made them aware that, for those of us who believed, at any rate, there was a meaning to man and his existence here on earth that went beyond the purely human and material. It wasn't a matter of telling them that I had all the answers and they had all the questions and problems. I was trying to show that the doubts and the longings expressed, the inner stirrings of their hearts and souls, came from a spirit in man that was natural, but more than material. I echoed St. Augustine's saying that man's heart was made for God alone, and it is restless until it comes to rest in him. Nor was it a question of my giving long sermons or explanations of the church's doctrine or the creed or salvation history, as the above synopsis might make it seem, for the evenings were filled with questions and counter-questions, with arguments and rebuttals, with explanations that led to further thoughts and questions and explanations, and generally with good humor underlying honest sincerity. Most ordinary Russian citizens know that religion still exists in the country, and many of them are eager to learn more about it. Many of them, too, can still recall how their parents and their grandparents clung to traditional beliefs and practices, how they wanted the children at least baptized, and they recall with a mixture of fondness and nostalgia the goodness of that generation they were later taught to ridicule in school because of the superstitious beliefs. Was it religion, they now ask themselves, that made those old folks good people? And what was it that made them go to their death still believing? They wonder as well what there is about religion that prompts the neighbors and fellow workers they know about to continue practicing their faith in the face of ridicule and harassment, of petty persecution and loss of social privileges, of personal suffering and sacrifice. Is there really something to it, they ask, and can it really matter so much, make so much difference to a man's life? The example of such courageous Christians, the curiosity and questions they inspire, do not make many converts, nor do my long conversations and explanations. But they must surely prepare the ground for the seeds of faith, which God alone can plant in the hearts of men. God, in the wonderful ways of his divine providence, uses many means to attain his end. Even communism itself, though its express aim is the destruction of religion and all belief in God, has a purpose in his plan. It is ruthless and cruel and violent, but it has also destroyed much that was corrupt and has started to build a new society dedicated, ironically, to humanity. On a purely natural level, its concern for men has done much good. 
Its people, through suffering, and undoubtedly much unnecessary suffering, have responded to its harsh demands with a great deal of self-sacrifice, in a spirit of dedication and a sense of brotherhood that might well be the envy of many a more Christian country. Surely the seeds of faith that God will plant in his own good time must find in such hearts as these a fertile soil and a rich harvest at last. My apostolate to these people, again in the strange and mysterious ways of divine providence, has ended, but I remember them with fondness and sadness. I pray for them daily. I still remember them along with my Russian Christians of Norilsk and Krasnoyarsk, with my fellow prisoners and friends in the labor camps, in my Mass each morning. And I offer up all the prayers, works, and sufferings of each day for their eternal salvation and happiness with God. That is my role in the kingdom now as then, in conformity with God's will for me, and I accept and embrace it daily, as I have ever done. Epilogue I have written much in this book about the will of God and His providence. I am afraid some readers may feel that I have made too much of it, and to them I can only apologize. Others may feel that my beliefs in this matter are too simple, even naive. They may find that my faith is not only childlike, but childish. I am sorry if they feel this way, but I have written only what I know and what I have experienced. Many people, from newsmen to housewives, ask me over and over again how I managed to survive the years in Soviet prisons and the labor camps of Siberia. My answer has always been, and can only be, that I survived on the basis of the faith others may find too simple and naive. So I have offered this explanation and answer to the many questions asked of me in the hope that it might prove helpful to those who are interested or seeking an answer. To those who feel disappointed, who find it hard to accept so simple an explanation, who had perhaps hoped to hear from me some secret and mysterious formula that would help change their lives or strengthen their faith and cannot accept what I have written, I can only express my regrets and my sympathy. Perhaps my words might have more meaning to some if I were a theologian or could better explain the workings of grace and the movements of the soul I have learned only by experience, but I am not and cannot. All I can do is state as plainly and as honestly as I know how the simple truths I myself learned only by trial and error, truths that I came only gradually to appreciate even in my own life after much anguish of soul and a great deal of prayerful reflection, truths that sustained me finally through the long years of doubt and darkness, of hardship and suffering. It is my hope, indeed my prayer, that what I have learned and come to understand so slowly and painfully might be of service to others. God is a very patient teacher, and I was a most stubborn pupil. I am convinced, though, that he taught me the lessons I have tried to repeat in this book not for myself alone, but that through them I could be of help to others. It was in that belief I set out to write this book, conscious of the limited ability at my command and all too aware that I have no special claim to a hearing or to credibility, yet convinced that one purpose, at least, in the mysterious workings of his divine providence for my return from the Soviet Union was to tell the story I have tried to tell here. Somewhat like Isaiah, I am embarrassed about it all, but driven nevertheless to speak what I have been given to speak. For all my apologies, therefore, I am not ashamed of what I have written here, simple as some may find it. The terrible thing about all divine truth, indeed, is its simplicity. 
whether it be the secrets of the physical universe he has created, like Einstein's E equals MC squared, or the Ten Commandments, or the Beatitudes, or the truth we learn in the Catechism, all can be simply stated. And yet how curious it is that this very simplicity makes them so unacceptable to the wise and the proud and the sophisticated of this world. It is the simple things of this world, says St. Paul, that God has chosen to confound the wise. Has God really planned it so, or is it just that we in our human wisdom are too proud to accept the utter simplicity of divine wisdom? Why must we always look for more sophisticated, more meaningful, more relevant answers when he has set the truth before us in so stark and simple a fashion? Man was created to praise, revere, and serve God in this world and to be happy with him forever in the next. That is the fact of the matter. You believe it or you don't, and that is the end of it. Philosophers may argue about it, and they have. Some have managed to convince themselves and others of its truth, while others have not. But it is the first truth of the faith, and those who have faith accept it, those who do not, do not. I cannot myself convince anyone of it, but I believe it. I do not apologize for my faith, nor am I ashamed of it. What I have tried to show in the pages of this book, however, is how that faith has affected my life and sustained me in all I experienced. That faith is the answer to the question most often asked of me, how did you manage to survive? And I can only repeat it, simply and unashamedly. To me, that truth says more than that man has a duty and obligation toward his Creator, as many have tended to interpret it. To me, it says that God has a special purpose, a special love, a special providence for all those he has created. God cares for each of us individually, watches over us, provides for us. The circumstances of each day of our lives, of every moment of every day, are provided for us by him. Let the theologians argue about how this is so. Let the philosophers and sophisticates of this world question and doubt whether it can be so, the revealed truth we have received on God's own word says simply that it is so. But maybe we are all just a little afraid to accept it in all its shattering simplicity, for its consequences in our lives are both terrible and wonderful. It means, for example, that every moment of our life has a purpose, that every action of ours, no matter how dull or routine or trivial it may seem in itself, has a dignity and a worth beyond human understanding. No man's life is insignificant in God's sight, nor are his works insignificant, no matter what the world or his neighbors or family or friends may think of them. Yet what a terrible responsibility is here, for it means that no moment can be wasted, no opportunity missed, since each has a purpose in man's life, each has a purpose in God's plan. Think of your day, today or yesterday. Think of the work you did, the people you met, moment by moment. What did it mean to you? And what might it have meant for God? Is the question too simple to answer? Or are we just afraid to ask it for fear of the answer we must give? The air is full these days with talk of peace, of commitment, of fulfillment. Yet no one can know greater peace, no one can be more committed, no one can achieve a greater sense of fulfillment in his life than the man who believes in this truth of the faith and strives daily to put it into practice. If it all seems too simple, you have only to try it to find out how difficult it is. But you have only to try it to find out as well the joy and the peace and the happiness it can bring. For what can ultimately trouble the soul that accepts every moment of every day as a gift from the hands of God and strives always to do His will? If God is for us, 
Who can stand against us? Nothing, not even death, can separate us from God. Nothing can touch us that does not come from His hand. Nothing can trouble us because all things come from His hand. Is this too simple? Or are we just afraid really to believe it, to accept it fully and in every detail of our lives, to yield ourselves up to it in total commitment? This is the ultimate question of faith, and each must answer it for himself in the quiet of his heart and the depth of his soul. But to answer it in the affirmative is to know a peace, to discover a meaning to life that surpasses all understanding. That is the only secret I have come to know. It is not mine alone. Christ himself spoke of it. The saints have practiced it. Others have written about it far better than I. I can only hope that what I have written will strike a responsive chord and some will prove a help to others, however few, and I pray that you may be one of them. This concludes the recording of He Leadeth Me, written by Father Walter Chiswick with the help of Father Daniel Flaherty, read by Father Rob Ketchum of petersboat.net.